friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. In this book, it's called Discipleship Begins with Beholding. Uh, it has been a fantastic book. That's where a lot of the ideas for this uh, sermon series has come, uh, come out of. Jonathan has uh, become an artist, uh, as I think we've seen. That's the topic for today. The fire is back. This should be fun. But here's his, here's his topic, or here's his drawing. And uh, this was extremely helpful for me in trying to put together where we've been. And if you've met Fill these, man. I would really uh, encourage you to go to the podcast, fill in the ones that you have missed. But it starts with Revelation, moves on to God's beauty, which stirs this fascination that leads to love, desire, delight, desire, and then the culmination that we get to talk about today is passion. And what do we say about people who are passionate? We say they're on fire for something, right? People who are passionate about God, they're on fire for God. And what we see is that when God formed a corporate people back in Exodus, that fire came down from heaven. Then in Exodus 25, 8, it says this, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's, that's the Father's heart that he wants to dwell and hang out, be in the midst of his children. And so what he did is that he led them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. And then when Solomon dedicates the first temple, fire came down from heaven so that all could see that God's spirit, his glory, filled the temple. Sadly for Israel, they went astray. Babylon destroyed them and the temple, and they stole the Ark of the Covenant. And in Ezekiel 10, we, we read some disturbing words. Ezekiel says that he saw God's glory leave the temple and leave the city of Jerusalem. Even after hundreds of years later when they rebuilt the second temple, there was no fire that fell on the second temple. It's because that's not where God's glory was going to permanently reside. Hundreds of years pass again. And then Pentecost. And when Pentecost came, the fire returned. The fire was back. The temple was back. And the temple was now a group of people. God dwells with his people again. Amen? And we, as his temple, we, as God's people, have a new commission. And that is to go make temples among the Gentiles and all of the nations. So what is a temple? A temple is where the presence of God dwells and is worshipped. It's that simple. It's where, it's where the Spirit of God dwells and He is worshipped. So a church is really when all these little T temples come together into one place and make the temple of God. 
But at times, churches settle for just being synagogues. You know what a synagogue was. So a synagogue was an extension of the temple. In the temple, the key thing was the presence of God and worship. Synagogues it centered around teachings and community functions. Sometimes churches settle for that. This, what we're doing here, is not the main point. All the worship did not lead up to the teaching time. The teaching time just goes to, to support what we've just sung about and what we're going to sing about again. Church must be a place where people gather together to behold the glory of God and to minister to Him. Not because He needs it, but because He delights in it. And as we glorify his presence that shapes us and a fire is ignited within our hearts because we've said this we become what we celebrate and when we celebrate the presence of God we become the carriers of the presence of God so today I want to talk about passion and how I started I just talked to several friends this week about passion and and what's it like when you had it and what was the cause for maybe when passion waned and then what did you learn about restoring passion for the Lord and it was an email conversation yesterday with Tom um, a text conversation with Jonathan over the last couple of weeks conversation with Clay at the office on Friday and these these conversations really helped shape this so if it's not any good you can blame those three <laughs> so I think this starts with, with the obvious right I think there are three kinds of people in the room maybe maybe three kinds of people in the world right the first is people who are currently passionate about Jesus if you were here last week it's easy to be in group one Right? It's easy to be passionate about uh, Jesus when, when you see how he moved last week. Secondly, people who've never been passionate about Jesus. And then third, people who were once passionate about Jesus, but have lost it. So I just want to talk briefly to, briefly, <laughs> I want to talk briefly just to those three groups. First is the people who are passionate about God. Jonathan referred to a sermon series of one of his friends, John Tyson in New York. Current series that he's on is called God Dwells Where He's Wanted. Think about that. God dwells where he's wanted. That is a life-changing principle. God will pass by 99 lukewarm people and set ablaze the heart that is set aside for his kingdom. God will pass over 100 sleepy churches but he will light up the one who wants his presence. We've sung it. Sue referred to it. But we're going to stand and read Psalm 63, just the first four verses. I won't have you stand every time we refer to scripture today or we'd be up, down, up, down, up, down. But please stand. Not the first part, but we'll start with verse 1, O God, and let's read this together. O God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Amen. Sit down. 
Your steadfast love is better than life, David says. David had a lot of power. One of the most powerful men to ever live. He had a lot of recognition. He had a lot of fame. He had a lot of wives, which means he had a lot of satisfaction. He had it all, right? He had what we think is the American dream long before there was an America. He had it all. But he says, after having it all, Father, your love is better than all of it. And love is, it's not a formula. It's relational. I think so often as Christians, we think we are worldview people, right? We're, we're, we're people of the Bible. We're, we're, we're small t truth people. And we've kind of got this thing down to a formula, right? Like two plus two equals four. And so when we hear Jesus say, I am the way, I am the truth and the life, we take that and say, okay, that equals the bridge illustration. God's over here, we are over here, and there's this chasm between us, and we use Jesus to get what we want, which is God and eternal life, right? I'm not cracking on the bridge illustration. I've seen people pray a prayer, surrender their lives to Jesus because of the bridge illustration. But when we make the bridge illustration about us, we've missed the point. Christian life is not formulaic. Christian life is fundamentally relational. It's not repeating some incantation. I'll say this, you say this. No, the Christian life is fundamentally relational. It is your love is better than life. And my lips will praise you. It's the only appropriate response when you understand what the Father has done and how good he is. David goes on to say, and I think of you through the watches of the night. I, th I think about you through, through every time I wake up. I got to go to the bathroom. I, th I think about you all day long. I think about you. Uh, long before there was a Tony Robbins, uh, Tony Robbins, there, there was an Earl Nightingale. He was, uh, there was no TV back then, so it was radio, right? And, and he was a motivational radio guy who also happened to be a Christian. But he had what he called the strangest secret. Here it is. The strangest secret. We become what we think about most. We become what we think about most. Father of American psychology, William James, takes that thought and extrapolates it, and we see this. If you only care enough for a result, you will almost certainly attain it. If you wish to be rich, you will be rich. If you wish to be learned, you will be learned. If you wish to be good, you will be good. Only you must then really wish these things and wish them exclusively and not wish at the same time a hundred other incompatible things just as strongly. There's a lot that we can learn from that. David wished. David wished and longed for the presence of God. No matter his situation. Whether he had it all or his life was in danger. And in Psalm 63, his life is in danger. Why should that matter to us? Because I think a lot of times we think that we would be more passionate about God if we would just get this. If the Lord would just answer our prayer here, we would have more passion for him. But what those in group one, those that are currently passionate about Jesus, what they have discovered is that the gap is actually the gift 
a gap between what they currently have and what they need and long for. Somebody to be well, the, the cancer to go away, a, a son to be healed, whatever it may be. The gap between what they want and what the current situation is is actually the gift because it's that gap that generates the hunger and the thirst for the Lord. So David goes on to be able to say things like this, I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you no matter what, no matter what the situation is. And what we've got to know, and group one, I think, has probably figured this out, at least for the time being. We never drift towards passion. We always drift towards complacency. See, we choose passion. Passion comes from what we think about most. One of the things that I, I can say now is I can say I'm a fly fisherman. You know why I can say that? Because I thought about it a lot. And I practiced. And, and now I can honestly say I am that because I became what I thought about, hopefully not most, but a lot. Those passionate about Jesus have found that treasure in the field and they're willing to give up everything else. And all I would say to you today is keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Group two. In your heart, if you're honest, you've just never had your heart stirred for passion for Jesus. No judgment. No judgment. But can I tell you something? This is, this is not like a threat. This is not me pounding the pulpit. It's just simply an invitation. So please hear this in love. But God promises that one day, every knee is going to bow to Jesus. One day. And so what I would say to you in group two is, just why not, just a simple question, why not now? Why not sooner rather than later? See, we were made for Jesus. We were made by Jesus, for Jesus. And in the famous words of Blaise Pascal, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And we saw a really clear picture of this kind of nationwide in the last several weeks, right? And it happened in a second. One hit. One routine tackle. And a nation didn't know what to do. His teammates didn't know what to do. All they could do was pray. Sportscasters didn't know what to do. So they just prayed. Dan Orlovsky... He's a commentator on ESPN and a former NFL quarterback. He stopped during his NFL live show on ESPN, just live, and said these words. He just prayed. He said, we believe that coming to you and praying to you has impact. If we didn't believe prayer worked, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. And the ACLU didn't stand up and say, hey, you can't pray on television. Uh-uh. Even those who were not professed believers, spoke of the comfort of faith. 
Nick Wright, who is the host on Fox Sports of a show called First Things First. By the way, a pretty good little title for today's message. First things first, he, he pointed to his colleague, Chris Broussard, who's a Christian, and he said he longed for that kind of faith. He said, at times like this, when there is an inexplicable tragedy, you're almost flailing, asking why, 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 he's yelling in the TV screen. And then he said these words. He said, it made me a little envious in that moment. Because I'm not a person of faith. Since then, I realized I didn't have a foundation or higher purpose or something in the face of tragedy, and it's left me flailing. I was envious in that moment and since then. I think that was kind of the cry around the United States. It was just yearning for that kind of passion. Because secularism and self-help just doesn't work. And even in a secularized nation, I believe that our true instincts emerge in times of crisis. Whether it's 9-11, weather travesties, mass shootings. We all have these hashtags, right? Pray for Paris, Orlando, New York, Haiti, Las Vegas, California, Minneapolis, Seattle, and Damar. The list could go on and on. You've seen the hashtags. You've seen the shirts. You've seen the Instagram post. In a time of crisis, we appeal to something outside of ourselves, a power beyond ourselves that can save and rescue us. And as C.S. Lewis wrote, after being in group two, not passionate about Jesus himself, he said, we were made for another world. And the gospel of Jesus says this other world is real because of what happened at Christmas, right? God visits the world that he created. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ made possible what we long for on nights like that Monday evening in Cincinnati, a reversal of the tragedy of death, of personal transformation of restoration of a broken world. See, the, the world just can't do it. It's not designed to satisfy our deepest longings. Jeremiah 2, God says to his people, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. We've done that. Try to find pleasure, try to find our deepest longings, and so we try to build them for ourselves, and they have cracks, and, and, and they're futile, and, and everything just drains out, and we got to keep filling it back up. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman in John 4.10, says this, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying it to you, saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He goes on three chapters later and says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. That's his disciples and that is us. See, living water. Living water is a symbol for the knowledge of salvation. And of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But living water is Holy Spirit. The 
woman at the well had tried everything and everyone, and none of it held water. And this is our life. There's this storyline that we think we want to be a part of, and then we get in it, and it disappoints. That's why I think so many successful people are miserable, depressed, and anxious. And this is the point where I think we see this crossover between group two, never been passionate about Jesus, and group three, who were once passionate about Jesus, but aren't anymore. The anxiety, the cares of the world, fear has overcome them, and they've lost the passion. We see the disciples that have gone through the exact same thing. I think we can learn some things from them, lean on them. In John chapter 20, starting at verse 19, it says, On the, even, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, uh, were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And he said this, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, I don't know how you can read that and not chuck a little bit, chuckle just a little bit, right? It says the disciples were glad. The disciples were glad when they saw Jesus. No, you're glad when your Amazon package gets to the house, right? You're glad when your kid's school finally doesn't get canceled, amen? Except for a few teachers maybe out there. The disciples are literally undone. They are beside themselves. They went from devastated, depressed, and petrified to ecstatic. Jesus had beat death which means that everything that he said was true, was true. That is the moment that Christianity begins. Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is use, useless, and so is our faith. We're, we're just wasting time. We're just impressing one another by being here this Sunday morning. If not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the night the Christian faith was born. And that night, the disciples went from passionless just a moment ago to passion-filled, and they couldn't wait to share this story of Jesus with everyone they saw. See, if Jesus, if Jesus would have stayed dead, he would have been nothing more than a lunatic. Absolute lunatic. Maybe a good teacher. Complete crazy man. Because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. You know that. I know that because they killed him for that reason. And then he would say things like, unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood. And people were like, we out of here. And he said to his disciples, you going to leave me too? And they're like, where on else? Where would we go? Where would we go? If Jesus had stayed dead, all was lost. Let me ask you a question. In that upper, upper room, before Jesus enters, did they still have the teachings of Jesus? Yeah. Did they still have his principles? Sure did. Yet they believed that all was lost, didn't they? Devastated. Petrified. They had his teachings, but they didn't have the person. And all was lost. And the same is true with us. 
we must not let the teachings of Jesus replace the person of Jesus. All passion was lost until the person stepped in the room. And when Jesus stepped in the room, the passion was back in an instant. Whoa! What? Ah! Can you imagine? It's back in an instant. And he says, peace be with you. He says, look, they're like, we're looking. We're definitely looking. We can't take our eyes off. And he says, touch my hands. Feel my side. Christianity began that way. It didn't begin with fundamentals, principles. No, touch Jesus. And then he says, now I'm sending you. And like, you didn't have to tell us that. We're gone. There's no way we could keep this to ourselves. This is literally unbelievable. Too much. Church, how is your passion? How's your passion? Just a little check-in. No judgment. How's your passion? Speaking of a church, first time it's ever mentioned in the Bible, Matthew 16, first time the word ecclesia was uttered in Scripture. It says this, starting with verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus says this, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're Christ. You're what we've been waiting on. And Jesus says, it is on that principle, on my divinity, that I will build my church. This whole thing is built on a person. Not this platform, not the teaching, not the singing. It's built on a person. So if you want principles, you probably have to go somewhere else. If you want to change life now and forevermore, it's about a person. It's about a, a person who was proved through an event, Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. We are gathered here today because of that one event. He taught some incredible things, countercultural things, yes, he, but he predicted his death, how it would happen, when he would rise, and then he pulled it off. And that changed absolutely everything. And now because of that event, we actually go back to his teachings. We devour his teachings. His teachings are sweeter than honey. But we do not worship his teachings. We worship him. We sing songs to him, but we do not worship the songs. We do not worship worship. We worship him. We want and long for his gifts, but we do not worship his gifts. We worship him. But what happens so often is we take this event surrounding the person and we take it and we turn it into teachings, principles, and traditions, and we wonder why our passion ebbs and flows. Instead of centering our passion on the God of the universe who left heaven and walked the face of the earth and beat death. Sometimes we say, okay, all that. But, but, but here, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to do this. I want you to take out your pens and write this down. Here are seven keys based on the teachings of Jesus that will give you more satisfaction in your job. 
Isn't that what we do? I'm, I'm all for taking some notes and writing that down, especially after this week. <laughs> but that is not the glue that holds us together. We are obsessed from this stage to, sell, to tell you about God who became man, who suffered and died for you, and was resurrected to prove that he was legit. And you know what Jesus said about the church? He said the gates of hell would not withstand this message about a person. When we celebrate the person of Jesus, the promise is that the gates of hell will crumble. And when you start to see the gates of hell crumbling in your life, when you start to see the gates of hell crumbling in the, uh, in the lives of people whom you love, your passion level will skyrocket. But be careful. Sometimes it's just for a moment or for a season. And if we're not careful, our passion level can wane as well. The person who wrote Psalm 63 that we as a group have been meditating on for a month, he's the example, I think he's the quintessential example of group three. David fell in group three. When he was just a young boy, there was a battle between the Israeli army and the Philistine army. And they couldn't find anybody who had the courage to step out against this man named Goliath and take him on. First Samuel tells us this, says, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is by the sword, not by sword or spear, that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. Amen? Where did David get this passion at such a young age? Where did he get this kind of self-confidence? This, is, this isn't actually self-confidence. This is not human confidence. This is divine confidence. Where did that come from? I think the first thing it came from is that he had already trusted God daily. He'd built his life on this. So, so, so when he was watching over the, the sheep and a lion would attack, he didn't trust his slingshot. He used his slingshot because he trusted God, right? Second thing that we see that he did on a regular basis is he walked with God daily. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? He makes me lie down in greed pastures. He leads me, he guides me daily, and then, if you've ever cracked the book of Psalms, you know that he worshipped God daily. What's the key word there? Daily. Daily. But then. Don't you always hate the but thens? But then. At a time when a king was supposed to be off at war, David in his complacency, in his apathy, in his lack of passion for the Lord, was in a place that he was, a not, he was not supposed to be. 
And when he was in a place that he was not supposed to be, he saw something that he was not supposed to see. And when he saw something that he wasn't supposed to see, he did something he was never supposed to do. And a lot of people lost something that they were not supposed to lose. See, at some point, he stopped trusting, walking, worshiping, and trusting God daily, exclusively. He let a hundred other incompatible things steal his attention. See, I think it's summed up like this. He took his eyes off of his conviction and put it on his comfort. And we do the same thing. All the people that I asked this week, the, the, the drift, the drift came because they took their eyes off of him and put it on their stuff or themselves, their comfort. We all fall in that same boat. We never, never drift towards passion. We always drift towards complacency. If you just pick your feet up and go with the current, it will not take you towards passion. David had it, then he lost it. But then, after a confrontation from Nathan, he writes Psalm 51. And he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. How did he get the joy back? He did the things that he did before. Which is exactly what Jesus tells us to do in Revelations, right? He's talking to a church, maybe not unlike Skyline. He's talking to the church of Ephesus. And he's telling them all the things that you're doing right. And then he says this. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. You, you know what this means? It means that David didn't lose his passion. He left his passion. Which is what we do. It's not something you lose like your car keys or your phone. It's something that you forsake. But what are we to do? Repent. I'm sorry. Turn around. Right? Change your mind. That's the idea of repentance. Change the direction you're going, the things that you think about. Then repeat. Do the things that you did at first. Notice that Jesus says, do those things. Don't feel those things. Do them. It's a decision that we have to make. Passion is a decision. It's not something we just... I'm not saying don't pray about it, but don't just pray. Practice. And instead of saying, you know what, I, I just don't, I don't feel grateful. I think Jesus would say to you, be grateful. I, I, don't, I don't feel loving. Jesus says, great, be loving. Be loving. I, I don't feel the passion. He's like, be passionate. It's a choice. Practice it. You can do it. And we do it not out of duty. We do it out of delight. And just know, no matter what you've done to this point, no matter where you're at, group one, group two, group three, God can take that season that you were in and use it for his glory, right? That story of David and Bathsheba back in December, one of the ladies spoke about Bathsheba. 
She's one of the four ladies, or five, uh, in, in that first chapter in Matthew. In the lineage of Jesus, he could have picked a whole bunch of people, chose a few women, and Bathsheba's one of them. No matter what you've done, God can take that season and use it for his good. Revelations 2. Always got to have a prop. Revelations 2 tells us this is us. This right here. This is our calling. We are lampstands. We're flame holders. And a flame holder literally has one job. What is it? Hold the flame. Crazy name. Flame holder has one purpose. It's just to hold the flame. The manifest presence of Jesus. So when people drive by out there, wondering what in the world are those guys doing in there? They drive by on a Wednesday night, they see all these young people walking into church on a Wednesday night. What are they doing? What's going on in there? They're beholding a love that's better than life. I hope that's what they're saying. I certainly hope it's what they're saying after you and I leave this place. See, a flame holder is just this freestanding piece that has in it a container that holds the oil. And the oil is what keeps the flame going and lights up the view for anybody in its vicinity. That's what the church is. The church holds the oil. Who's the oil? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Jesus is the flame, and the, and the Holy Spirit always illuminates Jesus, always points toward Jesus. If we're walking around like this, we've got Holy Spirit in us, we are pointing to Jesus, the flame. The church is not the flame. I grew up in an era where people would say, the church is the hope of the world. The church is not the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. It's the church's responsibility to just hold him up and let him shine. Amen? Kevin DeShazo, anybody follow him? Me too. Kevin said something this week that I thought was great for all of us. He says this, give oxygen to fire and it burns bigger and hotter. Starve it of oxygen and it flames out. Just four things. They're fast. We're done. Four things that I think we've got to do to either get or keep the passion. First, get close to the flame. Get close to Jesus. Second, stay close to the flame. These are, these are, these are really important. You should write these down. Hard to remember. Three, go where the oxygen is good. And four, check your oil. Okay? Get close to the flame. Jesus is fire. Get close to him and he'll burn off the dead wood in your life that is producing no fruit but taking up energy. Amen? Stay close. Stay close to the flame. Do you know what else fire does? It doesn't just burn dead stuff. It takes lukewarm water and brings it to a boil. Get close to the flame. And you'll just start to feel that bubbling up and the fire, that, that can't help but come out. Go where the oxygen is good. I don't know where that is for you. The oxygen is real good in this place. It's real good in this place. 
We've seen people healed of prostate cancer at that altar. We've heard all kinds of things. We've heard angels sing with our people up here. I, mean, I, I have FOMO on Mondays and Wednesdays. If I can't be here, I'm like, what's he going to do? I, I'm not missing. And I, I don't feel like I have to be here. I like, I want to see. Ain't no way this is happening without me being there. Group one, what's my word to you? Don't grow weary in doing what is right. Don't grow weary. Make sure that if that's you, you're currently passionate about Jesus. Why? How'd you get there? It's as important to understand when you got it, how you got there, as when you've lost it. Number two, group two. I think Jesus would say to you, if you've never been passionate about Jesus, he would say, what, are you, what, a, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And what I would say is you, you deserve that answer. In a non-condemning way, you deserve to understand why you've never been passionate about him. And maybe, maybe just ask, I'm not. Would you help me? I believe the oil will help it burn. Number three, if you've had it and lost it, repent and repeat. Maybe I didn't hit it for you. Maybe I didn't explain certain things well enough, but that's okay. Holy Spirit can still work. So I, I would just say, if you've never been passionate about Jesus, you, this is just between you and if you don't even believe in him, maybe it's just with you, it starts with you. It's got to start somewhere. Why? Why no passion? Why do you see others around you doing this, singing their I mean, necks bulging out and they're just singing? What, what is it? Why not you? And, and then for you, have you ever been, especially group three, have you ever been passionate about Jesus? But you're not now. Why? Why? What was going on when you were passionate? What's different? What's changed? I think there's power in commitment time. There's power in commitments. And so as we stand, we're going to sing. People will lift their hands. Understand that the altars are open. Our, we have a prayer team. If you guys will just go ahead and uh, why don't we all stand? Prayer team will go ahead and you'll see people standing up here looking at you, maybe wondering what they're doing. They're just waiting with, with eyes that are inviting. So where are you at? Pick a number. You don't have to hold it up. You group one. You group two. You group three. If you want to be in group one, the invitation is here. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. It's not too late. We got a few minutes left in service. Would you set our hearts on fire? Would you do oh, not what a talk can do, not what a sermon can do, only what your word, only what your spirit can do in an instant. Light us up in Jesus' name.